0: It's really good to be here. I absolutely love it. I was thinking about how many precautions we're taking wisely, very often, for our our health, physical health. But I was thinking of fellowship as we were gathered this morning as a massive lifeline, something that gives us life and, and spiritual oxygen and actually inoculates us from, from evil and sin and apathy. This is so important that we gather like this. I'm so deeply grateful I get to do it with all of you. Well, we're here to deepen our faith, and I think it's really important when we are growing as Christians that we not avoid times when our experience seems to contradict what we believe as Christians. You don't want to look the other way when that happens. You want to be really upfront with yourself and even others at times about seeming conflicts between what you're experiencing and what the Bible says is true. It's not uncommon for me to have times where I say, wow, that doesn't seem to go together with what the Bible says. I wonder why, and I try to think more deeply about it. There are times my theology and my experience conflict. One of those times, now I know this isn't true, but at times it's hard for me to believe. And here's what it is. It's hard for me to believe that that our golden retriever isn't a better Christian than I am. Boba is his name. Three of my kids are from Taiwan. Boba was invented in Taiwan, so they wanted to name him Boba, and we did. Boba, on a daily basis, seems to show more fruit of the Spirit than I do, especially ones like gentleness and kindness and self-control even. He's amazingly patient. I mean, really, there are times I think Boba, are you a Christian? I, I, I know it, it's, it's completely wrong theology. I don't think animals can be Christians. I don't think animals actually can exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. But man, it puts me to shame sometimes. I, and not only in general, but in the way he cares for Donna. So Donna was not raised in a dog family at all. And, and um... I really felt like kids especially should have a dog. I, we had lots of dogs in my family when I was growing up. I love dogs. And I, I, for years, would say, I think the kids, we, kids need a dog. They teach you so many important things, responsibility, how to deal with death even, all kinds of things. So finally she said, all right, we'll get a dog. So there, there's this Golden Retriever, Southern California Golden Retriever Rescue. They had a dog for us. He was nine. And at the time they were calling him Jorge in the rescue. And so we went to meet, at the time, Jorge, before he was Boba. I hope it wasn't much of a cultural shift for him when we switched that. But, but I went. Uh, we, we went, and Donna, who was hesitant, um, her dad would like swear when people had dogs. He didn't understand it, right? So she sort of adopted that. She never really liked it. We walked in the house, and Donna and Bo's eyes met. And it was love at first sight for both of them. It was amazing. I, I look at this photograph of Donna and, and Bo here. That's, that's old man Sugarface, Bo. And he loves Donna. From the moment they met, she became his world. Really, it, it's just amazing how this dog loves Donna. And it, let me tell you, it, I, I, I love a dog sitting at your feet as you read, right? I never get to experience that. (laughs) We got this dog and I thought I would have all these man's best friend. No, it's clearly woman's best friend in our family and he's always at Donna's feet. And when she's not home, I'm sitting reading, he's not at my feet, he's by the door waiting for her to come home with his nose kind of under the door, just waiting to hear the car pull in. He'll always be with her if he's able to, and if he falls asleep and wakes up and realizes that she had gotten up and gone somewhere, he goes throughout the entire house looking for her. Like I'll be in a room and he'll come in, he'll kind of look at me and then he'll look up on the bed and he'll look around and she's not here and he's, he's gone. And I'm like, hey, what am I, chopped liver? not even to him compared with Donna. It's just amazing how much this dog loves her. So this is a great example, right? There she is, talking to Isaac, but no, he's there all the time. And here's how he's convicting to me. I often think his relationship with Donna is really what mine with God should be like, waiting on him. His whole world is oriented around Donna. He's very conscious of where she is all the time, and when he feels a lack of her presence, it's alarming to him. And he'll go wherever he needs to to find her presence and sit in her presence, just like this. It's, it's just, ama- it's uncanny how much this dog loves Donna and orients his whole life around her the way we as Christians should orient our whole lives around God. Always conscious of his presence, always seeking his presence, always enjoying his presence. Donna can talk to him. He, he, he's good for her soul. It, I think Donna has, we've avoided some need for marriage counseling because Bo provides it for Donna. I've I found her a couple times out in the garage with Bo complaining about me <laughs> to the dog. <laughs> he, he plays a vital role in our family. He lowers our blood pressure. It, but, but it's been convicting to me to think about discipleship as we have been, because in a lot of ways, Bo is setting the example of what true discipleship is. It's orienting your whole life around Jesus. Not just kind of adding him to your life, even in a significant way, but no, orienting your entire life, conscious of his presence, seeking his presence more than anything else. It's a whole mentality. It's a whole way of living. It's a whole way of orienting everything in your life. And so as, as we go through this series on discipleship together, we're asking the question this morning, what is a disciple? Jackson did such a helpful job last week helping us think about why? Why is discipleship what our lives are all about? Why? Why is that? And, and it was so helpful to remind us that even though God's common grace can make life pretty good, Even though God's common grace can bring a lot of goodness and joy and happiness to the world, it's important to remind ourselves all the time that this is a fallen and dark and sin sick world. And we don't just settle down here trying to make everything fine as if this is all there is. Thank God that this isn't all there is. Thank God the answer doesn't have the last word or death as we've been seeing this morning doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. That's why orienting our lives around him is the best and smartest thing you could ever do because he alone has the authority to conquer death and conquer evil and sin the way we desperately need for him to. So uh, this morning we ask, what is a disciple? We are talking about, uh, as, as Jenny Earle helped us think about just now as she was doing announcements, this idea of, of what we're about, this, this engaging with people who don't know Christ and engaging with people who do and evangelizing, preaching the gospel and then seeking the whole time to be established in our faith and then equipping and being equipped in our faith. That's what we're, we're thinking about. And so we can reach our goal of on judgment day presenting everyone mature in Christ. That's what the whole purpose of our lives and our ministry at Grace is about. I mentioned during family time Sunday night when we had the Lord's Supper and some child dedications. By the way, I highly encourage you if you're not making it those to make those. Those are such important times in the fellowship of our church. But I mentioned this that you can have a really impressive ministry and not be making disciples. Individually, collectively, as a church, we could have really cool, slick programs and facilities and, and impressive ways of doing things and running things and, and not be making disciples. I mentioned this last Sunday night. That there was a church that for probably in the 90s was the church that churches all over the country looked to as an example of how to do church. And then, I think, it, I think it was about 2006, they did a multi-year intense study to, decide, to, to figure out if they were actually making disciples. And they realized they weren't. They thought attendance at these amazing performance-oriented, entertaining, interesting. I mean, they ran the place like a corporation. They they had uh, uh, worship services that were like off-Broadway presentations. It was just amazing. And, and they weren't making disciples. People weren't growing in maturity in Christ. They weren't becoming more like Jesus. And I really appreciated how honest they were about it. Listen to what the senior pastor said. When they finished this research, he said, um, some of the stuff we've put millions of dollars into thinking would really help our people grow and develop spiritually, when the data actually came back, it wasn't helping people that much at all. Other things that we did didn't put much money into at all, didn't put much staff into that stuff, that's what people were growing in and crying out for. We made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith in becoming Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility, become self-feeders. We should have gotten people taught. uh, We should have shown them how to read their Bibles and serve on their own in their communities, how to do spiritual practices more aggressively on their own. And what this also led to, even among the leaders of this church, including the one I just quoted, was a worldly lifestyle it's not just not making disciples if we're not growing as disciples we're growing in worldliness there's no neutral gear in our lives in that way and so we want to be very intentional and explicit and concerned and going after truly making disciples Now, what's interesting about this church, when they came out with these foundings back then, they packaged them and went on the road teaching churches how to do it better than they did, right? Very interesting. They kind of stayed in the same mode of we're the model church, even how to deal with our failures. But you got to wonder, still, if they're making disciples, the, the church is in chaos right now. But... But it's just amazing how we can think based on a very worldly definition of success that we're doing well in ministry when that's not necessarily the case at all. We don't want to do that here at Grace. And so we've got to decide what a disciple is. And, and here's, here's an offering of a... Hi, Bo. Uh, what a disciple is. Can we just get that up? Yeah. Uh, can we just get the without Donna and Bo. Well, I suppose that's fine. Bo's modeling this for us. Um, Yes, a disciple, someone who depends on, learns from, and is transformed by Jesus. That's a a way of summarizing what a disciple is. These three vital points here, depending on Jesus, learning from him, and in the process, being transformed to be like him and glorify God as we're intended in the process. You could also define it the way the Vine Project, this very helpful book we've been reading as leaders, defines it a forgiven sinner who's learning Christ in repentance and faith. We can't assume this is happening. We want to be making disciples who live godly lives and invest their lives in what lasts forever. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4? There's an amazing passage here that is so helpful in thinking about discipleship and what it means to be a disciple. This this word in the New Testament is probably best translated a learner, a learner in its simplest form. But listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. It starts off, so beautifully. Ephesians 4:17. Let, let's just read these verses together and think about what it means to be disciples. Help us, Lord, now, as we go to your word. Amen. Ephesians 4:19, 4, 4:17. 4, now this, I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, people tend to, I think rightly to some degree, say Paul often will, will lay out uh, established realities in who we are in Christ and then move to the practical. Well, that's kind of true in emphasis, but it's never completely true. He never leaves behind who we are in Christ. Listen, listen to what he says here. Don't live like the Gentiles. very practical. In the futility of their minds, don't live empty lives, fruitless lives, vain lives, in other words. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. So our our way of living is the result of our heart condition. But what is it that leads to our heart condition? We get some clues here. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And here it is. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Oh, that is so rich. That means we learn from Jesus. And when you learn from Jesus, you don't just learn facts and priorities and principles and propositions. You do all that. But you fundamentally learn of him because after all, he is the way, the truth, and the life. So you don't just learn a way, although you do that. You don't just learn the realities of the kingdom of God. You learn of the King. And when you're really doing that, it changes your mind. A good way to define repentance. It, it changes your, li- your mind and your whole orientation. Not heading towards self and, and evil and sin, but in a Godward direction now. You change your mind and your heart is no longer darkened. It is enlightened by the one who is the light. And now you are transformed. That's why a disciple is someone who depends on Jesus, learns from him, and is transformed by him. These three things are key. Dependence. Learning and transformation. Disciples have to have all three going. Now, they happen sometimes in stages. Sometimes there's a delay between learning something and actually having the heart affections that go along with it and then eventually the behaviors that go along with those. There's a process that can look messy at times and uncertain at times, but disciples in the, in the long haul need to be depending and learning and being Transformed. That's what we're after here, forgiven sinners who by the power of the Spirit and according to the Word of God are being changed on a daily basis to be more like Jesus. And so we find this call to be disciples and make disciples in the Great Commission, it's called. The Great Commission uh, says this. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So it starts with who Jesus is and that he gives us authority to go in his name. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So there's a missions, nations priority here. But any time we do ministry, whatever it looks like, whether it's our food bank or orphan care or, or literacy help or children's ministry or youth ministry or nursery ministry or visiting the sick or doing weddings or funerals or gathering like this on a Sunday morning or gathering for for a band of brothers meeting, or a women's Bible study, or Sunday morning, whatever it is, Sunday morning, Sunday school, whatever it is, the goal is that we all become more dependent on Jesus, learn of Jesus, and are transformed by him. That's the goal of all this. We can't lose sight of the goal. There's so many opinions about what ministry should be and what it should look like. Man, as a pastor, a week doesn't go by I don't get a piece of literature or hear from someone what I and we better be doing if we're not going to be obsolete. If we're going to stay relevant and innovative, and trendy, and cool, but but so often those things aren't really about disciple making, and we don't wanna make that mistake, so everything we do, that's why we depend on the word, and seek the spirit, and depend on prayer, and seek to serve, and proclaim, and care about missions, and devote ourselves to suffering to the glory of God, and giving generously, and doing all the things that disciples do. Next week we'll talk about what we do as a result. But the Great Commission says make disciples of all nations and then this key word baptizing them, why throw baptizing in there and not lots of other things disciples do? Because baptism is identification language. It's, it's something we do when we have baptisms in here. Well, I'm so grateful I've gotten to do lots of baptisms, including my own kids. And when we put the person in the water, we say that we're buried with Christ in his death and raised to walk in newness of life. See, that's identification. That's being identified with Jesus. That, that's what it means to be a disciple. And that's why baptism is so crucial here. It's identification with the, the symbolism of the water and the death and the resurrection. His life, his death, his resurrection now is what I'm identified with. And so we make disciples of all nations and it's Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then this content-based teaching, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's why good discipleship has a healthy teaching component, content-based component. Not just to fill our minds with information, but to know the one who has commanded what he's commanded. See, because the commands of God point us to the character of God. We know Jesus when we know, know what he cares about and commands of us. So don't ever lose sight of seeking to know Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. That's who he is, and that's who we're seeking. And so we, we do this seeking to know him as he is. And then Jesus promises us he's with us always, even to the end of the age. He's with us in this. He doesn't just reveal himself for 33 years and write about it in the Bible, but through the Spirit's mediating work, he's with us in this discipleship process. And that's the Great Commission. And I must add, the Great Commission must be grounded in and start with the Great Commandment. The Great Commandment and the Great Commission have to go together. I think we have all kinds of problems because we don't necessarily connect those two. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. And that's the foundation of the great commission. Why? Because we love him because he first loved us. And we love others because he loved us. And we want them to know that love he has for a lost and sinful world. And so we go about this great commission in this way. But it's gotta be grounded first in dependence, as I've said. It's, it's beautifully summarized in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. There's that identification language. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. That doesn't mean you're obliterated as a unique creation of God with a unique personality and gifts and a role to play in the body of Christ. It means, though, that your identification with Christ is so overwhelmingly foundational and important that Paul uses language like, I no longer live. There's no independent living now. There's no independent existence. It's doulas language. It's, it's slave language. It's, uh, I have no independent will of my own anymore. I've been set free from the bondage of sin and death and now I have a new master not that's going to kill me but give me life. This new master is the one who frees me but now I answer to him. I'm free now to follow and have a life of righteousness." no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live now in the flesh is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This total identification seen in baptism and this, this slave language, this, this, this no longer having in any independent existence is powerful for us to understand. We become then like what we love. That, that's the next connection here. When we love Christ, when we find our life in him, he's everything to us. There's no independent existence anymore. That's why Jesus is a disciples not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the servant like his master. So we don't just learn about Jesus, we learn of Jesus at the feet of Jesus and become like Jesus in the process. But look what... Jesus says discipleship looks like. When you love Jesus, when you find him more precious than anything else, you now change everything. Your old way of living is dead to you, and your new way of Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, Christ-dependent life is everything to you. It is so easy to turn Jesus into a self-help coach. You know, the gym I've been going to has... um, has, they, they have a big push for hiring a personal trainer so all over the gym people come and they, they hire these personal trainers they're always coming up to me would you like a trainer I said buddy I've been working out longer than you've been alive stop it just stop it and and but but they're coaching people they're helping them they're training them all the time right and, and they're trying to get people to reorient their working out and their lifestyle and their diet and all this stuff. These trainers are trying to help them do things in a way that'll make them more healthy. And, and so when we have a teacher, we need to listen to the teacher who has experience and shows us the way toward health. And Jesus shows us the way to life and joy and peace. Whoever loves his life loses it, Jesus says. See, now now we turn a corner and say, well, when you find Jesus more precious than everything else, everything else is seen in light of that. And you learn to love what you find most precious. Jesus says, uh, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you treasure most is what what leads your heart. It's what grounds your heart which means we need to recognize we lose our lives in a very real sense when we become disciples. We have no life of our own. Now, that's a terrifying thought to an American. Americans are all about, if you were raised in an American context, I know plenty of you weren't, but if you were, individualism may be the biggest obstacle to discipleship. Materialism, a close second. But individualism, that I'm a self-made man and I'm a rugged individualist. I remember learning that term uh, in in my first sociology class in in my sophomore year of college. Rugged individualist, that's the American psyche. Yeah, no, when when you become a disciple of Jesus, you lose your life, which, which can be terrifying. It can be terrifying. But unless you lose your life, you'll never find true life. Unless you die to self, take up your cross daily then, following the way of our master, you'll never really find life. Now we need to pry our fingers off of our lives that we've come to design for ourselves. It doesn't come easily, but Jesus says whoever loses his life, whoever hates his life in this world, will keep it for eternal life. Now, that hatred language is strong relative valuing. He's saying you need to value eternal life so much that you're willing to lose your life on this earth. Now, that may mean martyrdom, it may even mean it for some of us in here. But it fundamentally means a losing of any idea of independent, self made life that isn't under the lordship of Jesus. Whoever loves his life loses it, whoever hates his life in this this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. See, wherever he is, that's where we are. It's like Bo, wherever Donna is, that's where Bo is. You never have to wonder where our dog is if if you know where Donna is. He's where she is. And we need to be where Jesus is. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. See, a master has subjects who follow him and become like him and are are where he is. And we need to know where he is and where he isn't. And he concludes, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Eternal life, abundant life, honoring of the Father. That's what we get when we relinquish independent life apart from Christ. Like What else Jesus said? It's, it's, it's as strong as it can be. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's not saying you shouldn't love your mother and father. That's commanded in the Bible. Again, he's making a relative statement. If you love your mother and father more than me, he's saying. You're missing the whole point. You're not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So there's a dependence where we find our life in Christ. We don't work for our discipleship. We don't don't, um, earn it. We, We don't accomplish it. Jesus does for us. But when we realize that he is life to us. Now this life we see is fleeting as it really is. And we're able to let go of all the things we so often strive after where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal instead of storing up treasures in heaven and with growing intimacy with Christ and transformation to be like Christ. Jesus says whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you see what a radical reorientation this is? And in the New Testament, it's not radical. It's just the normal Christian life. For cultural Christianity, it's radical, but not for the New Testament. Last passage. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, Will find it for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what shall a man give in return for his soul see G- there's no fine print with jesus that's one of the things i love about him most there's no fine print there's no fast talking speaker at the end of the commercial talking about all the potential side effects that you can't even understand That's always amazing to me this will solve all your problems in this area of your life. And then this guy's saying hemorrhage, blood clots. It's just amazing how, if you actually pick up occasionally what he's saying. that Jesus isn't a fast talking commercial at the end, so you can't even, he, no fine print with Jesus. No mixed messages, no salesmanship. He lays it on the line. Jesus is a straight shooter. You may not like what he says, but, but he's not trying to con anybody. Jesus tells the truth. He is the truth. And so being a disciple of Jesus is something you need to know ahead of time as you seek to get into it. Jesus warns people to consider what they're getting themselves into when they follow Jesus. I'm not here trying to be some game show host or salesman because I want to represent Jesus. Jesus is everything to us. So Colossians 3 puts it this way, set your minds in the things that are above, not the things on earth. And here it is again, listen to this picture of discipleship. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also with him appear in glory. Christ who is your life, not your self-help coach like the trainer at Crunch Fitness. No, he is your life. Not not somebody who gives you advice or teaches you ethics and how to live. No, he is your life. He gave you life in the first place and he offers eternal life by faith in him. And no sacrifice in this life could even come close to comparing with knowing Christ and his love for us. That's who Jesus is. The way, the truth, and the life. You will never regret giving your life to Jesus when it's about him, not about making your life better or more tidy or safer. You know, I, I understand what they're after marketing-wise, but the Christian radio station, that their big motto is safe for the whole family. I think it used to be, but ah, safe for the whole family. How, how about radically decide? Nah, I don't expect them to do this. Don't, don't get me wrong. They got a, a purpose, but I just, I wonder if that safety idea slips into our thinking and overwhelms us? Did you hear the way Jesus talks to us? He says elsewhere that he comes to bring a sword that'll even divide families. Oh, he's the prince of peace, but that peace he brings isn't without division that he brings as well. Jesus brings teaching that tests your true reasons for being a disciple, for being a Christian. There's no pragmatic, self-centered consumer mentality Jesus wants to at times shock us and offend us and change us with radical, read normal discipleship. Because the fact is, God is holy and we're sinful. And God hates and judges sin. And we all have hell to pay. And we need God to overcome our sin and rebellion. We need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And if you've never come to terms with that basic gospel, you're not a disciple. And I want to plead with you this morning to turn and reorient everything around Jesus. You won't regret it. I've been following Jesus as long as I can remember, and I've never regretted it one day in my life. It's been costly. It's been challenging. At times, it's felt exhausting and frustrating. And as I said, sometimes my reality conflicts with what I believe, but as I walk the path of a disciple, Jesus proves himself more and more worthy of my whole life. He's worthy of your whole life, and he's the one who will give you life that actually has worth for eternity. So turn from sin and trust Jesus, and come up after the service and pray with those who are here to pray with you or someone who brought you maybe who you know has a relationship with Jesus. Don't leave here today without trusting Christ and becoming a true disciple and he will bring life and peace and abundant joy as only he can when Jesus becomes our greatest treasure and our greatest joy because he's supremely excellent and worthy of our deepest and unreserved devotion. He will never fail you and never disappoint you. He may defy your agenda you bring to him, but he'll never disappoint you when you get on board with his beautiful plan for your life. Um, I got a lot of messed up family members. I'm not going to talk about them. But I have some amazing godly fam- family members, especially in my grandparents' generation. One of them was my Uncle Mike Kurlak. Um. This is my Uncle Mike. I never met Uncle Mike. He was from western Pennsylvania, where most of my mom's side is from. Real gritty people out there. Um, But Uncle Mike uh, was raised in a very empty church that wasn't a disciple-making church. It was very formally impressive, but it wasn't a disciple-making church. And my Uncle Mike... Uh, Heard the preaching of the gospel through a Salvation Army preacher and trusted Christ. And Here's a little bit of Mike's testimony that he wrote. I prayed after hearing this message, God, if there's any power in that blood that was shed for my sins, let it be applied to my heart right now. I had never heard a prayer before, In fact, I had never even been to a Protestant church or talked with Christians except for the man who gave me a tract once. As soon as I uttered that simple prayer, the burden of sin was lifted and I knew I had been saved. I said nothing at home at first, but of course eventually my father found out. He became extremely angry and wanted me to know that he did not approve of my being what he termed a salvationist. He ordered me to abandon my new religion and to return to the church of our family. But I told him I could never do that. Then he ordered me out of the house. I found other quarters where I could live, but occasionally I would sneak home when I thought my father was working. Twice my father caught me at home. Once he grabbed a butcher knife to stab me, but my brother-in-law standing behind him caught his arm and while my father turned to see who had interfered, I slipped out the door. Another time he tried to choke me to death, but God interfered miraculously at that time. Finally, I left for Nyack, New York to prepare for missionary work, for the Lord had revealed to me that I was to serve him in Africa. Just before sailing for France and then on to Africa, I visited my father. He was quite calm this time, but of course thought it was ridiculous for me to go to a place where cannibals lived. He said he hoped they would finish the work he had meant to do. In other words, kill me. I was assigned to begin missionary work in Timbuktu. It's a real place, you know. (laughs) Reverend Willard Martin and I were first to begin the work and live there. There was a strong Muslim city there, and therefore we had opposition. But eventually we prayed to the Lord for the souls that did emerge out of darkness seeking the true and living God and listen how he concludes his testimony as we review our past 45 years on the mission field we can only rejoice at what God has done if we had another life to live we would gladly give it for Africa we found joy and peace and blessing in the service of our King. See, being a disciple isn't being religious people or even moral people or nice people. Being a disciple of Jesus is beholding the glory of God in his face and never being the same and being willing to live for what really matters and what really lasts, no matter the cost in this life. Heavenly Father, help us to be true disciples. Lord, we don't want to go through the motions or fake it. We we don't want to just be religious people or just kind people who fulfill what our culture thinks Christians are, but that the New Testament takes to an entirely different level. Lord, help us as a church to truly be about Maturing disciples who make disciples. Lord, we love you. We pray that we would find Jesus more precious than anything else. And we pray this in his name. Amen.